All right. So, uh, Sensei Joe, we're in the zone now. This is season zone. three, episode four of the Art Fight Podcast, and you are listening to a landmark occasion happening right now because I've admired very few people in my life. No, that's not true. I've admired a lot of people <laughs> in my life, but um, uh, getting to know our guest today has been a real honor and a privilege because... Uh, absolute renaissance man in the in the fullest form and somebody that does everything so well that it's kind of uncanny and bizarre um trying to think of what other ego boosting things i can throw in here real quick um ultimately uh james rotundi thank you for being here this is really really awesome and i'm super excited thanks man yeah so um and sensei joe thank you for being here thank you yeah you're here every time Every time, I was just—I um, was here early. I was at uh, Frothy Monkey. <laughs> so anybody that doesn't know, there's a coffee shop in town in Nashville. It's called Frothy Monkey. And let me tell you, when they first opened up in the '90s, I thought there's no way a place like this can stay open with that kind of a name. That's just a ridiculous name for a coffee shop. And then here they are, like expanding their enterprise to it's like five of them world domination. So what do I know about marketing? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, about monkeys. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, so James, oh, geez, uh, how's it going, man? It's going good, man. Thanks for uh, inviting me over. I love the space, and uh, it's great to be with you guys. Yeah. And so we were just talking about, um, uh, we, have a, we have a friend in common, uh, Michael Shreve, who we've had on the podcast, um, who is the original drummer for Santana, but has done a million things after that have been wildly... Um, uh, um, innovative and interesting and it's always interesting to, to think about like what um, people are known for versus like sort of where's the bulk of their maybe most important work and sometimes you know I would maybe if you're in Led Zeppelin you can say you know the most important work I did was in in Led Zeppelin you know but uh you know some of these people that come from these these large band situations you know that are really successful they have a whole other line of work or channels of work to explore that are so amazing and, and enlightening. And I feel like that um, your path has been a little bit like that in a way where you kind of came up uh, playing with a lot of people that, um, you know, all, a lot of different legends and, and, and then sort of, I guess you've kind of gathered all that and then uh, followed your own path. But, uh, you know, when you got started, like the only, the earliest I know about what you did is basically like, you know, getting back to like playing with groups like Air and Mr. Bungle and things like that. But what, uh -huh. where, where did this happen? What, where, what, what's before that? Uh, I think before that is just a like um, constant ice hockey. Maybe, yeah, <laughs> like a, a sort of a series of detours um, that somehow I feel like my path in life has been. And yeah, in many ways, like a lot of different detours that have led me to different places, but they've all been really engaging ones. And maybe that means I'm easily distracted. Maybe that means that I um, have varied interests, as one might say. I'm not sure, but um, you know, I I uh, started playing music as young as nine years old, eight or nine, playing guitar and studying guitar and and taking it pretty seriously from a very young age. But I also grew up in a really in a house with a very smart mom who was a uh, uh, English teacher 
and a literature and religion major hmm. in college. So we had a house ridiculously full of books um, and a lot of books on the spiritual path, etc., as well as a lot of literature. And then my dad was a, a, a very accomplished engineer. And uh, so I had the sort of like a full brain to access in a way, like all hemispheres. Kind of, yeah. And, and that's how it was. You know, my dad stressed math and sciences. My mom stressed the humanities. Um, you know, my sister was a bohemian who, you know, was learning Neil Young songs and stuff and, and all that. <laughs> my brother was into Deep Purple and, and Aerosmith. And, you know, it, 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 you know, this stuff just sort of... And I was the youngest, so I was the little sponge, you know. And I guess yeah, I just cool. sucked all this stuff up and... Um, so long before Aaron, Mr. Bungle and all that, I was, you know, the sort of 13 or 14 year old, you know, guitar kid who mm. was playing gigs at the Rat and the Channel and stuff like that in Boston with people who were in their 20s. And they had to sneak me into clubs. I almost got kicked out of the Rat on numerous occasions <laughs> with a band called Teacher's Pet, a band called Dogs in Traffic. <laughs> um, Dogs in Traffic. I was too young, just, I was just playing too young to be there, but I had a buddy named uh, Mark Walensky, AKA Whiskey. And he was 23, I was about 15, and he was, uh, he had gone to Berklee School of Music, he was an absolutely ridiculous drummer, and um, also a really great sound engineer, and uh, he was the manager of the studios at Berklee. So, at this very young age, I'm getting, you know, getting to hang out at the studios in Berkeley, but he's also getting me on gigs, and he's getting me on gigs, like I said, at Bun Raddies and The Channel and The Rat. These are names that people who come from Boston may remember if, they were, <laughs> if they're old enough. But um, So, you know, I started doing lots of gigs from a very, very young age, mm. doing uh, every, you know, the, the Iron Horse Saloon and shit like that in Northampton and you know just almost anything by like I said 15, 16 I was already doing a lot of gigging it was back when places had cool names not this frothy monkey stuff <laughs> exactly <laughs> the Iron Horse Saloons <laughs> yeah. that's what I'm talking about so like you talk about the it's interesting because I feel like I have a slightly similar um, sort of mom dad sort of dichotomy where it's like uh like my mom was a teacher she taught English as a second language yeah, yeah. but was very sort of um spiritual and intellectual and so she has you know i grew up with everything from um you know joseph campbell books and things laying around to um martin buber philosophy you know sort of um jewish enlightenment period books and then you know uh black elk speaks and you know totally you yeah. know what i mean like that sort of you know I guess back then it was you know it sounds very thin to say this now but I suppose it was sort of like new age in a way but it was I think a little bit more thoughtful and not based on some weird esoteric vanity but anyway well um, my mom's thing was certainly not new age or at least she did, she couldn't have thought of it that way because she predates it basically right. so I, for, I think that's kind of for her it yeah. was literature and philosophy is how she thought of it but mm -hmm. you know by the time I was eight years old you know I, I knew who Thomas Merton was, and I knew who Shunru Suzuki was, and I had leafed through Alan Watts's The Way of Zen <laughs> by nine or ten, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand it, of course, but my mom had taught me to read really young, for mm. one thing. So I was, you know, I was very active reader at a young age, so I would dig into these books. And I have to say, this is one reason that by the time I was ready to go to college, um, I was A, threatening not to go to college. <laughs> I had announced that since I was going to be the next Jimmy Page, there was really no particular reason for me to go to college. <laughs> to which my dad, I remember, looked at me 
with absolutely no expression on his face and said, you're going to college. <laughs> and that was the end of that conversation quite completely. And then, you know, I realized, you know, I don't just want to study music because a lot of my buddies were going to Berkeley. That was a common thing. And I, looking back, I think that could have been a marvelous path. And I play with a lot of guys um, who went to Berkeley. I always have. Any of us who are musicians invariably end up with Berkeley people, you know, in our in our. Uh, surroundings and it's always awesome and they're always super well schooled but you know I, I was like you know what I, I, I need to do the humanities thing you know that's that's big part of who I am so I, mm. I tried to find a school that would allow me to do everything and ironically you mentioned Renaissance man <laughs> I kind of love this because the 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 uh, you know, the, my submission for my essay to get in my you know, to get into into Bennington was the most pretentious fucking thing <laughs> that a seventeen year old has ever written. <laughs> I basically announced my intention to become a Renaissance man, yeah. <laughs> and I said that my model was David Bowie. Uh -huh. I said my model is Bowie. I want to, I want to write. I want to act. I want to play music. I want to compose. I want to sing. I want, you know, I want to, you know, I want to be a writer, I want to be an actor, I want to do the whole thing. I said, that's it. And it was absolutely the most pretentious thing. Their, their hair must have flown <laughs> Do you still back. have a copy of it? I probably can probably turn okay, it up. Okay, we'll, we'll put that on the website um, for But everybody. yeah, I remember I was very much under the spell of Bowie at the time. Yeah. I suppose I still am in, in some ways. Um, because yeah, he that, that was it, right? Like that was, that was really cool to me, this idea that you didn't, you know, just need to do the one thing. It's mm -hmm. a blessing and a curse, though, because yeah. I sometimes feel like maybe I would have been better at this if I hadn't done so well, much that's, of that. That's, but, I mean, you know. I don't say this really ever, but that's the thing is like, the, like you're actually legitimately, holistically, soundly good at all of the things huh. that you do. Thanks, like, man. and I don't know. Uh, you know, we we talk a lot about you know, uh, and we're obviously like big sort of you know combat sports fans and mixed martial arts fans and. There's such a, um, you know, there's such a um, to practice martial arts and to to see how people put it all together. These different, like seemingly completely disparate disciplines, <clears throat> even in those sort of micro ways. You know, it's like uh, you're 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 always. I think everybody in life is trying to figure out how to synthesize a lot of seemingly disparate things, even if it's just like parenthood oh, versus yeah, sure. like what I do when I leave the house or just. You know anything, so you know. In a way, I think it's 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 probably one of the best skills you can you can possibly uh, put together. But at the same time, you know, to be able to do all that. But at the same time, I I mean, at least for me, I'm I people sometimes look at me as being kind of one of those people where it's like, well, you do this and you also do this and you also mm -hmm. do that, and that's really cool or whatever. But I always am beating myself up because I know inside that I'm not doing everything that I could possibly do if I were just focused on on one discipline or one 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 focus. Right, if it's a military analogy, then it's almost like you're trying to defend yourself on several fronts simultaneously. Right. And that's not easy, because yeah. you know, you are, literally because you know, you, you don't want to sort of fall off in one area. I mean, I obviously do a lot of music, I do a, a, quite a bit of touring, especially at, you know, it goes in waves, but this year I'm doing an immense amount of touring. Um, but, you know, I'm also a music journalist and a writer, and, you know, I kind of want to keep that up for various reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, financially, it's it's always been a big part of the way I support myself. Um, keeping a reputation and a name in, in any given industry is an ongoing thing. You mm -hmm. can't just sort of fall out for, you know, a couple of years and expect to kind of come back in. So, you know, I sometimes feel like I'm... And then, you know, I mean, I, I went 
you know, I was actually, I ended up being a literature and drama major in college, and, and I loved acting. So I've always had that as well, and I, I took myself to uh, the summer session at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art about six years ago. Oh. And studied Shakespeare in the same halls as wow. uh, you know Mark Rylance and uh, Kenneth Branagh and Sean Bean and all those people with the same teachers, many of them who even taught those those guys. Jeez. And that was absolutely amazing, and I got to really connect with that. You know, and part of me wishes I had done that my whole life. You know, mm-hmm. but um, I so I don't. Know, I guess I, I'm lucky, but I to to have a bunch of different things that I've managed to be reasonably. Uh, good at, but I do feel like if it's a combat analogy, then it's it's kind of like which like one of those which, Bruce which Lee against yeah. ten guys kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Which knife? Which, which knives are you going to sharpen? Right. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, and Joe obviously is, uh, you know, I call him Sensei Joe, but you know, writing writing about other people's art intelligently while also creating your own art intelligently and not getting those things mushed up in your brain too much. Oh yeah. While that, also being a musician, yeah. while also being a songwriter, mm-hmm. while also doing all the things that you're doing. <laughs> I mean, making it, me tired. Like, it, yeah. yeah, I didn't know it was so tired. But you know what I mean. But, like, but for you, like for any of us, really, that are doing all these different things, I don't. I mean, it, it comes with its own challenges. But I don't think it's like something you set out to. Uh, like, I'm gonna have this. You know, I'm gonna be the Neapolitan of skill sets or something. You mm. know what I mean? It's it's just these are all things I'm wildly interested in, and that I feel like I have something to do or yeah. say. And you know, but, I try not to do ahead. things I suck at. You know, but I, you know, I won't pretend that it's not sometimes, um, perhaps a conflict is not the right word, but that, you know, I remember when I started touring with the Grassy Knoll with our dear friend uh, Bob Green, a.k.a. Nolan Green, a.k.a. Nolan Verde, a.k.a. the Grassy Knoll. And, uh, a.k.a. You, one of my biggest musical influences. Yeah, yeah. an amazing human being. And, and uh, boy, that, it was a, both an experience and an edu- education working with Bob. Um, <clears throat> as a player, he, he pushed me a lot, as he does, I think, everybody in his artistic world. Um, it's part of who he is. He's kind of a provocateur, I think, to the people that he works with. And um, with me also, you know, I would play things and he would just be like, no, that's just way too obvious. Try the other thing. I'm like, what, what other thing? And he would say, you know, try the thing that just got delivered on a helicopter from outer space. <laughs> I remember him saying something almost to those exact <laughs> words. Just, you know, do not listen to the track. I don't want you to play what sounds tasteful on the track, you know. Um, but I was going to say, you know, when we were on tour, I was at that point, I, w- I had taken a sabbatical from Guitar Player Magazine. I was the, um, uh, the features editor of Guitar Player uh, and ultimately senior editor for seven years. <coughs> Six years? Yeah, 91 to 97. I took a sabbatical to go on tour with the Grassy Knoll, which is just an innovative and amazing band. I felt very fortunate to be asked to be part of it. Um, Dave Rivelli, I remember, the drummer for the Grassy Knoll, and I had done a commercial session together, and he asked... He thought I'd be really good for for the grassy knoll, so I did it. But um, for that whole first tour, when Bob really wanted to zing me, what he would say was he'd be like, James Rotundi, associate editor. (laughs) 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 And and then, you know, I remember Clyde Sutliff, the trumpet player in the backseat of the van, would be like, so are you a musician or a writer? (laughs) Like, you, you know. (laughs) Do you, what do you find, like, to me, like, writing about art I I was always somebody who like no matter what I'm working on like I'm going to watch a bunch of movies I'm going to go to a bunch of galleries I'm going to read a bunch of books I'm going to just constantly shove things in my brain and ultimately that's going to be 
stuff I'm going to use in my own art, ideas I'm going to use in my own art, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to like figure out why this movie is driving me crazy and I love it so much and I'm going to break that down and I'm going to figure out, well, well, how do I apply that to something that I'm doing or whatever? And for me, when I started writing about uh, about work, I mostly write about visual art. I write mm-hmm. about the movie some too. But like, it's like, it's like I'm already doing this anyway. You know what I mean? But if I actually write it all out, it's like I, I learn it even better and somebody will pay me for that. And now I can take the time and they'll, they'll give me the tickets to go to this movie yeah. and I'll write about it. You know what I mean? So it, it, was, it was a way that I realized there was this, there was a way to underwrite my research essentially and For sure. yeah. and it's like it's like I think a lot of people don't understand how that works, and it's like this is something that I think most artists are doing on some level, but most of them don't write it all down and get paid for it. <laughs> you know, yeah, and that's the only difference, really. Yeah, but the underwriting aspect is actually important because yeah. there is really very few people in the creative world who are not underwriting themselves in some ways, which is to mm. say we're doing some kind of professional gig in order to help support our original gig. <clears throat> it doesn't mean the original gig doesn't make money. In some cases, it makes a lot of money for mm. people, but in the same way that, say, a university professor, you know, they have the publish or perish creed, you know, uh-huh. you know, they're, they're, you know, they're supporting themselves by teaching at a university, but they're mm. still putting out the books. Right. They're Ultimately, still doing they're it. scholars, yeah. you know. They're scholars, exactly. Yeah. Even, even when they're publishing original stuff, even original literature. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know. Sometimes you wonder, like, does all this analysis and research that I do in order to support <laughs> my writing about and being articulate about uh-huh. music, visual arts, etc., does that apply a certain self-conscious filter to what I'm doing as an artist or not? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that's a bit of a concern. But what happens, I think, is once you start doing the work, that worry goes away. Uh-huh. Because I think, isn't that always the case? When you actually just start working, all that shit you thought about your work was supposed, that you thought were the challenges of your work or the Uh self-conscious, it kind of goes away. Or the preconceived sort of notions or ideations about what this should be. Yeah, just fucking work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sit down and work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all think about working. Sometimes we stress about it. Sometimes we procrastinate about it. Yeah. Sometimes we wonder what our direction should be. (laughs) Yeah, You know, all this kind of stuff. (laughs) And then there's these kind of conflicts like, oh, I write about music and yesterday I interviewed so-and-so big star or, you know, big important producer. Mm -hmm. Gosh, he must be so much more knowledgeable about audio than uh-huh. I am. I'm such an amateur in Logic Pro compared uh-huh. to this guy. <laughs> you know, all these kind of things. But then, no, you sit down, you just start working. Uh-huh. It's like Frank Zappa used to say, you know, just get up in the morning and start working. Yeah, yeah. He used to always say, you know, musicians are no different from anybody else. Get up and start working. Yeah. And once you start working, kind of all that stuff goes away. And mm. then you're really happy with yourself at the end of the day. Yeah. I think as a critic, writer, journalist, etc., in addition to being an artist, whatever, you can... There's a little rabbit hole there. You may have to sometimes be careful mm-hmm. of when you're, say, writing about someone or interviewing someone. And it's... You know, you really do have to take a back seat. You mm-hmm. have to be the receiver of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that can sometimes be hard for us, especially after, you know, a lot of years working with people. But I... I would rather continue to be surrounded by creative, accomplished people than not any way I can get it. And I have been unbelievably lucky in this Mm. respect. Yeah. I mean, I have been incredibly lucky, the people I've gotten to work with. Earned luck, though. 
Yeah, maybe. I, I suppose so. But it's like, you know, I just finished a record in New York uh, at Avatar Studios now, redubbed the, the power station at Berkeley because mm-hmm. Berkeley bought it and everything. So it's oh, a facsimile of the original. It's <laughs> it's 100% the original. In fact, they're going to do some <laughs> renovations. Uh, but, you know, I've worked there before as Avatar and now it's returned to its original name, yeah. um, which is what Tony Bon Jovi, yes, related yeah. to John Bon Jovi, yeah, yeah. named it the power station. <laughs> Um, and uh, working with this band, The Cringe, that I've been involved with for a lot of years, um, making this new record. And the producer for these sessions, uh, for this album, is Don Gilmore, who made Meteora, the great Linkin Park record that you know, I think is made perhaps the best-selling rock record of all time, or one of mm. them, and Good Charlotte, and just and Dashboard Confessional. And he was the guy who engineered Pearl Jam's 10. Mm. Wow. He did Eddie Vedder's vocals on 10 and he did <laughs> all the vocals for Chris Cornell didn't like Rick on Parishar Temple. also work on that Rick Parashar yeah. uh, was the producer yeah he owned London Bridge Studios yeah yeah but Don was the guy in there day after day on doing the, the engineering for yeah. about I think he told me about 300 bucks wow. a week oh man but he did all of Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder's vocals on Temple of the Dog as yeah. well so basically that's like the underrated masterpiece of the grunge era I agree (laughs) so I mean you know I just got to spend you know 10 days straight working with this cat people that invented a a sonic vocabulary yeah like why why am I there Um, and and, you know I I don't know it's kind of weird I've gotten to play with you know Matt Chamberlain and Mm -hmm. and and Skarek and Shreve and you know all these people And, and this stuff sort of Continues, you know, and and I I just feel really lucky that it continues, and I'm I'm sometimes a bit boggled that it does happen. I and also like you said, Joe, because of the you know with the journalism thing, then there's there's access to people and mm. being informed by them and receiving wisdom from mm. them, right? Tr- transmission of wisdom, as mm. as the Buddhists would say. You know, mm. you're being you know I've recently um, interviewed uh, people like. Um, this cat, Eric J, who's been doing all the uh, future classic stuff from Australia, like mm-hmm. uh, Chet Faker and um, all that stuff. But yeah. he's, you know, he, he came up with Nick Sansano from Green Street Studios in New York. You know, this guy is probably the best mixer in the world right now, in my opinion. I mean, he's just an absolute beast. Mm-hmm. Just a beast, you know. Uh, next week, I'm interviewing um, Rostam Batmangalye from uh, Vampire Weekend who's, you know, he left the band a couple of years ago, but he's doing, you know, he's mm-hmm. a super badass mixer and stuff. Um, uh, Dave Bailey from Glass Animals, the British band, I yeah. interviewed uh, last week, you know. Um, I've interviewed Al Schmidt, the guy who engineered all the Sam Cooke sessions and Sinatra. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I... Can you imagine s- recording somebody like that? Jesus. Yeah, I mean, and <laughs> yeah. Chatting with, even chatting with this guy on the phone yeah. is just mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I think in a weird way, I, I guess... Uh, what I sort of look back most fondly about my career so far is not necessarily even what I've done, but it's who I've gotten to do it with. Yeah. Why have I gotten to sit down with Eddie Van Halen and Jimmy Page and Al Schmidt and, you know, why? Like, how did this happen? Like, sometimes, you know, you do have to kind of pinch yourself. Like, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, and, and and I know this, you know, you don't have to like name names or anything, but has there been points, I'm always fascinated with the idea of sort of you know, mythic heroes when you're young, all oh, of a sudden yeah. being like the people sitting across from you or working on a project with them and the demystification that can, and certainly 
it's it's a weird sometimes it's a reduction that's kind of welcome where it's like oh they're just you know <laughs> regular people that are interested in regular things and I you know we talked about you know different types of bread and that was really I enjoyed that or whatever yeah. <laughs> you know versus like this is like a weird you know inverse energy that I don't, actually don't like or something you know what I mean have you mm-hmm. had any of those sort of experiences you don't have to name names just name the names no <laughs> I, I really don't feel like I've ever had that experience mm-hmm. although I do know and Joe can probably attest that uh, if you're interviewing somebody they tend to be on their best behavior Yeah. now when you get off the phone with them they may scream at the publicist right, right, or right, their right. manager I don't really know but yeah. they tend to be terribly yeah. charming on the phone with them. oh yeah they just so, you know so. so what are you holding back right now you're, you're, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're not really interviewing as much as just hanging out and having a conversation and wanting to ask you questions about things which I think is different than an interview right like you don't see any paper around here no I certainly don't so uh, we're either just the most inept interviewers ever or right. um, or we are recording but we're, <laughs> yeah but I did hit we hit the right button so that's good but like um, I've had a lot of fun with a lot of these people yeah, I yeah, can yeah. tell you that yeah yeah um, you know I do have I have stories yeah let me tell you that yeah um, you know I have a lot of stories um, I'll, I'll throw a few favorites out um, in 1995 I went whoa that's so long ago man. so long ago I can't believe I was yeah. even alive then really <laughs> I was only five years old at the time. <laughs> yeah. um, I went to Seattle's Bumbershoot Festival yeah and uh, there was a big thing, the Jimi Hendrix, uh, what did they call it then? It was around the time that uh, Paul Allen, the, the, the recently departed Paul mm-hmm. Allen, had mm-hmm. opened the experience, uh, the experience uh, exhibit. Project. Yeah, Experience Music Project. And this yeah. was sort of, I believe, the kickoff event. And it was a huge Hendrix tribute concert. And they had um, Noel Redding there. And they even had um, Mitch Mitchell there. Mm-hmm. And they had Billy Cox and Buddy Miles there. Mm. All of them. Yeah. And Vernon Reed. Everybody that had passed through that. And oh, Eric Gales. Oh, okay. So then all the, pred- the uh, progeny. It was deep. Mm-hmm. And Mike McCready. And I mean, it was deep. And I was there at the rehearsals. Uh-huh. All the rehearsals. For two days. And I was hanging out with Vernon Reed and Eric Gales and got to meet Mitch Mitchell. Mitch Mitchell hadn't barely been seen. Yeah. He had basically gone to France. I know he had some alcohol troubles. He passed away some years ago, but he was there then, damn it, and playing the drums. And it was amazing. Man, that'd be great. And I got to hear Billy Cox with Mitch and like Buddy Miles with, with Noel. Like it was insane. And of course, you got Eric Gales. The guy is the best guitar player on the planet, maybe, you know. And Vernon and people like that playing with them. And then uh, even, um, shit, who was the, the legendary uh, Hendrix impersonator for years was Randy, oh, come on, Roto. <laughs> uh, he was there and he is probably he was probably the greatest channeler of all that stuff. Wow. Um, but anyway, so I was at these rehearsals and I started chatting with Noel Redding, you know, and, and he's just very nice, you know, English man <laughs> and everything. And, uh, well, Your Shakespearean hey, training's coming thank through. Thank you so much. Yeah, so, so Mitch and I are chatting, you know, and everything's fine. He looks at me, so he gives me a little wink and he says, uh, do you smoke reefer? <laughs> and I, I said, why, you know, yes, from time to time. So uh, he said, yeah, come with me. So we went into the little dressing room and he pulls out a joint starts lights the joint up starts smoking hands it to me and um, you know there I am sitting in a room just me and Mitch uh, me and Noel and he starts just talking about his uh, his pal Hendrix I never called him Jimmy he said I always just called him Hendrix hmm. still do I find it hard <laughs> to call him Jimmy 
he said and he just started talking about you know he said he was my mate you know people ask me a lot of questions but ultimately he was my mate and I miss him dearly yeah and we just sort of got high and uh, you know he at that time also told me a lot that he had a lot of feelings about the way Jimmy died Mm -hmm. and that ended up leading me to be introduced to Hendrix's girlfriend now her name was Kathy Etchingham and Kathy was absolutely Jimmy's girlfriend now we all know that he you know it was the 60s and he was uh, you know the love child of of the mystic cosmos Uh, and she knew that too and and no no harm done or whatever but he lived with her I mean they were a couple for sure you know right up until maybe less than a year before he died Um, and then you know there was a lot of stuff going on about reopening the investigation into his death and I sort Mm. of ended up getting thrown into the middle of this oh my god and I was receiving way more information inside information than I even really wanted to know I brought that information back to my editors at Guitar Player when I came back from the festival um, and asked them if it would be appropriate for me to write a story about that and there was a big meeting of everybody and everyone decided you know what we're a guitar magazine but this is not our turf we don't really want to dive into this and around the same time another guy that we knew well because he had been at at keyboard magazine and had moved over to musician his name was bob dorshuk he still he actually lives here in nashville Hmm. still you know a very fine fine music journalist he basically also had kind of tethered into this conversation uh, at the same time or at a different time around the same time okay. uh, talking to Kathy and he ended up going with, for it whereas I felt like I don't know this is deep I ended up writing a similar story about two years later uh, for Guitar World called um, called uh, I'll Meet You in the Next World and I think that was in 2004 or five at, or, or even 2003 at Guitar World magazine. And what this was, was my way of taking what I knew or the theories that I had heard. Actually, a lot of it was facts. There was a lot of stuff that was very, that was never really found out about Hendrix's death and how he died. And it's a little bit odd. Um, I used the dream sequence at some point to kind of carry some of these ideas over without necessarily suggesting that I... Without like a sort of bold assertion that you're standing yeah, on. Right? Yeah. yeah, and um, so I finally did get that story out years later because I, for one thing, I had not only interviewed Kathy, but I had spent a couple hours with Monica Daneman. Monica was Jimmy's girlfriend the night he died mm-hmm. and during that era. And she had been blamed for his death a lot because her story about being in the ambulance with him when he went to the hospital and stuff ended up being quite untrue Yeah. in the end. She had lied about it quite wow. a bit. Uh, at the time, she was living with Uli John Roth, who was the guitarist for Scorpions, I think you know. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, Kathy did reopen the investigation, and she did rebut a lot of what Monica had to say. Uh, I had two hours on tape with Monica that I wanted to use but had not used it first and then did end up using a bit of in the Guitar World story but after Kathy opened the inquest uh, again Monica sued her took her to court Um, I was obviously watching all this as I knew them both and liked them both very much Uh, Monica was very sweet if quite troubled and um, she lost the case and about a week later uh, I'm sad to report uh, she self asphyxiated in in her car and died um, so mm. 
part of me was, I guess, a little glad that I kept myself out of that. But at the same time, I was also very much in it. And, and um, it was a very strange thing to have grown up worshiping Hendrix. My first book report in ninth grade was about Jimi Hendrix. Oh, wow. Um, I wore a dashiki and played the Star Spangled Banner at my eighth grade talent show. You know, I was <laughs> deeply, deeply, deeply into Hendrix. This is what you should have done for your college entrance. <laughs> Probably, yeah. And so here, I, he, so here I am in the midst of this, basically kind of in his life somehow, in this strange way, and spending a lot of time you know, with Kathy and with Monica and and, um, well, did you find yourself, in, when you're in that situation, sort of constantly checking yourself about kind of the perverse nature of it or something? Like, kind of like, like, am I attracted to this for something that's unhealthy? Or is this something that, I, am I really being of help? Or am I just another now sort of uh, coordinate in the echo chamber of information slash disinformation? Or like, It's or hard to say. I guess yeah. it, it, was, it was probably inevitable that it was going to happen, I guess, a little bit um, because of what I had chosen to do and the fact that I was, a, I guess, a reporter, basically. But, you know, I was also, you know, a player and, you know, I was like a hip young guy who could hang with Noel and everybody. And, you know, it was like, it just kind of happened that socially and professionally, it all kind of dovetailed. And next thing I know, I'm sort of in the middle of Jimi Hendrix's life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I hope in the end that I had a positive influence there, and I suppose in a way I'm glad that I held my cards a little closer um, rather than jumping in right away. Although I have great respect for what Bob Dorschick wrote. Mm. He took a lot of heat for that story, but I I admire him very much for for getting it out because he didn't write anything that wasn't true. Um, But uh, yeah, things like that are weird where you do end up crossing paths in a way with your heroes sometimes in easy fun ways and sometimes in more difficult ways um, to throw a little levity in the yeah. situation yeah. Uh, I was once asked by my pal Brad Talinsky who was the editor editor-in-chief of Guitar World for about 20, 20 years back in uh, maybe 2005 if I would come to LA for a big photo shoot for the cover of Guitar World magazine with Jimmy Page and Joe Perry and a couple friends Tom Morello um, slash um, Zach Wilde um, you name it like it was Dean DeLeo like it was off the charts it was like 16 guys yeah, all on the cover and then Brad said would you like to interview Jimmy and Joe with me and, you know and I said you gotta be kidding you know I was being in the same room with Jimmy Page you know just made me sort of hyperventilate practically <laughs> So uh, so I went in there, you know, we sat in a room, just the four of us, and we started interviewing, and it was really pretty incredible and amusing. First of all, you could not have two more different cats than Jimmy Page and Joe Perry, let me tell you. Right, like, <laughs> so American and so right, British. Right, because, you know, when yeah, Jimmy starts yeah, right, talking, right, yeah. it's a bit like, he sounds a bit like David Beckham. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, and he, he talked quite a bit about how the blues, you know, it was just, we were all listening to the blues, yeah. right? Because <laughs> he, in art school in 1963, <laughs> that, that's simply what one did. Right. Yeah. You know, we, and so we were listening to Shaggy Otis, and we were listening yeah. to Otis Rush and Buddy Guy, and, 
<laughs> and being informed by this, you know, <laughs> in addition to the work we were doing, you know, in painting. <laughs> and then you got, you know, and I remember Brad saying, so Joe, you know, how did you first hear about, <laughs> how'd you first hear about, you know, Zeppelin? He said, I don't know, I was 18 years old and I lived in Brockton. I was a, I was a fucking retard. I don't know. I, I, just, I heard Zeppelin come on. I was like, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> So uh, you learn you learn a lot about you know, about people doing that sort of thing. the broad set of humanity all working yeah. together to make yeah. awesome shit happen. That's what that is. Yeah. So well, and uh, so you have um, you know you have countless musical projects that you've you've been a part of. Mm-hmm. Like um, if somebody wanted like the Roto Starter Kit, right? <laughs> um, somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, this guy's you know vaguely interesting and <laughs> perhaps I'll go through the trouble of just you know googling something no but um but like what would be the what would be the roto starter kit interesting like, I, you I know because yeah. you have so many different this is what I'm curious about because I just know that you have a, a, such a wide array of things so it'd be interesting to see like what you would consider maybe perhaps more definitive or at least a good starter honestly I feel like I put I put a lot of my the uh, personal identity into this album called Into the Unknown by Roto's Magic Act and that is everywhere it's on Spotify and Apple Music and and everything Roto R-O-T-O apostrophe S Magic Act and um, that album I made it in 2013 uh, released in 2014 and I made it with a producer in Brooklyn named Bryce Goggin who is really an amazing producer he'd uh, recorded in mixed pavements, Crooked Rain. He'd done Space Hog and Fish, and just an incredible amount of records. And we met, and I knew he was—he's like a capital P producer, just has the right personality. His studio was great, called Trout Recording. And in, in did you look at a lot of different people and kind of really shop around? You know, or was it something where like you just kind of ran into it and like this is the spot? A few people said to me, Roto, I really think you should meet Bryce and, yeah. and check him out. I knew that I wanted to make a record that I would spend some money on. Yeah. (laughs) Meaning like I knew, because I had made a first record that's called Summer Home and I'm very proud of that record too. That's just Roto and it's called Summer Home. And I made that with a really talented dude named Steve Rossiter, also in New York. But I knew for the second record I wanted to go with a producer, uh, you know, with a, you know, a long track record and, and I knew I wanted to kind of, you know, not shortchange myself financially in any way. Like I didn't want to get, you know, buddy deals and anything like that. I was like, Mm. I was ready to do whatever it took to make the record. Um, And so I started working with Bryce and... uh, As my Australian friend says, uh, no mates rates. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. By the way, I don't want to mean to cut you off, but that's a huge thing that people have to, like anybody, if you're looking to make a project or something and you want to hire somebody to sort of facilitate that in whatever capacity you need, it's easy to get caught into the pattern of like I'm gonna like friends helping out mm-hmm. friends and and all these things kind of getting co-opted in some way and I can't tell you how many projects I've been a part of or seen in my life that have been distilled or hurt by good people trying to do good things right it, so anyway that's a great that's a wise because outlook. when we do the mates rates the bro bro deal as we mm-hmm. say it works on some level um I had a lot of incredibly fine musicians on that record, including Sean Pelton from the Saturday Night Live band, 
Matt Chamberlain plays on that record. Um, Joe Gore. From, you're like, I'm going to get all the best drummers in the world. Oh, I, I basically <laughs> did. I got the, the, the three best drummers in the world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also got Joe Gore from Tom Waits and PJ Harvey's band. I was on that record. I mean, it's just, it's kind of nuts, the musicians on there. And, you know, I paid them. For sure. But in that case, it's kind of like I get the bro-bro rate, you know, because we uh-huh. all play together. We're, in a sense, part of the same economic ecosystem mm-hmm. is how I think of it. But with certain things, like the producer and stuff, like, just just go pay somebody. Yeah. Because if you always do the, 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 the friend thing, then, you know, your, your project isn't necessarily a priority. Mm-hmm. You know, fin- finance matters in our capitalist society. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get the damn thing done... That's funny. It's a. It's a. I just remembered. It's a violinist friend of mine from L.A., Chris Murphy, who once said to me, "Pay somebody to record the album and get it done." This guy did like six albums in a year or two years, and I said, "How did?" I remember asking him. I said, "Chris, how did you do that?" He said, "I paid somebody to do it." Yeah. I didn't like get you know extra time at the studio. I just got my resources together and made it happen. At any rate, Roto's Magic Act is the record where I was like. Uh, I, I gotta do the record that 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 brings all my stuff together, mm. integrates me because it's one thing to play a, a role in a band, say I'm the guitarist in the Grassy Knoll, or you know, and it's another thing to be like, okay, I'm the auteur behind this mm. thing. This is my thing. This is my vision. I'm gonna write the songs. You know, everything. And uh, I was fortunate at that time. Uh, here's another just ridiculous creative spirit that I've been incredibly fortunate to know and work with to some degree and that's uh, Bob Schneider from Austin, Texas. Do you, do you guys know Bob? Mm-mm. Okay, well Bob Bob has uh, had a big hit with a song called 40 Dogs. He's he's one of Austin's greatest songwriter and musicians and I think personalities, performers and characters huh. and he started a thing about 5 years ago. I got involved um, in about 2011. Something he calls the Song Machine. The Song Machine uh, I believe was inspired by a book by Pat Pattinson, who was a Berkeley professor of songwriting. He wrote a book called Writing Better Lyrics. Gillian Welch, famously, uh, also I think was part of a poetry machine or a poetry club. The idea being that you get a group of people and everyone contributes a, an original song every week. Friday at midnight or you're out. That's the deal. So you're accountable. Nobody wants to get thrown out of a songwriting group, right? <laughs> That's right. Bob would give you two weeks, maybe, but if you didn't do a song after two weeks, like, okay, thank you very much. So once you're in it, you're just stimulated, and everybody then emails the songs to everybody else. Mm-hmm. So and it's not about feedback necessarily, although you can do that. It's just about the act of making sure you're exercising your songwriting muscle. Mm-hmm. So I started that around 2011. So by 2013, 2014, I had 300 songs. Oh, that's great. If not completed songs, then certainly the seeds of songs, well demoed, in mm-hmm. some cases fully produced demos, in some cases iPhone demos, whatever. But I had ridiculous amounts of material, and I was able to comb through and say, what's the best stuff here, and what's the stuff that will stick together the best? Uh-huh. What, what needs finishing? You know, in some cases, I really need a bridge on this song, you know, whatever. But then I, I went in and did that work. And then, of course, I'm on the clock with Bryce. He costs money. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I got to get it done. You yeah. got to make choices. Yeah. yeah. I, so I got to go home after a day in the studio, and then I got to, you know, I wanted to do sound effects between every song, you know, much along the lines of what, say, Genesis or Floyd used to do, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a prog album. It's honestly more of an Americana <laughs> album or a... Or a 
power pop Americana record than it is uh, a, a prog album. But I can, wanted can we invent something called Pragacana. Yes, oh, I love it. We just I'm did. On, you I'm just on did. board. Okay, so that, that's actually what the record is in yeah. a way. It's it's the idea of the album as journey, uh-huh. sonic experience, conceptual foot, record, footsteps, yeah. train sounds. I oh, do a okay. lot of voices. I speak in German and Italian and French. <laughs> uh, I literally had over a hundred and twenty uh, samples just plucked from sound effects libraries, circus sounds, and right. Trains Air, in the distance. Yeah, all, and all stuff. Yeah, exactly. All stuff that connected to the songs in some mm-hmm. way, so that every single song has a transitional, um, a little transitional journey in between mm-hmm. them. There's a song called um, "Hearts in Flight," which is using, you know, basically um, a flight in a rickety plane as a, as a metaphor for relationships. Which is probably pretty apt, <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> and, and a beautiful, sure. beautiful, yeah, yeah. A beautiful plane, even on the worst days. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I used these beautiful sort of vintage plane sound samples mm-hmm. that I found, along with synthesizer patches and things, and sort of collage this stuff. So you know, the album just kind of it's 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 sort of my homage to the '70s in some ways. Um, Neil Young. Uh, Early Elvis Costello, Pink Floyd, Genesis. Um, it's my my kind of Americana record. Tom Waits. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of you know the Flying Burrito Brothers, by way of the Eagles, even is mm-hmm. kind of in there to some degree. Certainly, plenty of you know McCartney solo type of mm-hmm. sounds, um, uh, and then of course maybe a bit of XTC, Robin Hitchcock, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I think of it as a fairly American record. There's even a song called South, which is kind of my tribute to um, Little Feet mm. by way of the Dixie Dregs. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's Southern rock. It's got those big, you know, uh, Dwayne Allman sort of harmony guitar lines and six mm-hmm. and all that cool. kind of Every shit. Every time I hear the words Dixie Dregs, I kind of shudder. <laughs> because that was my first gig. I talked about that once before on this, but my first gig ever playing drums. I'd been playing drums for six months and the, the instrumental sort of math rock band that I was in, our first, uh, the first gig that I ever played in front of people like where I actually had been hooked up to a, like where I was playing with a, where there was a PA <laughs> was opening up for the Dixie Dregs in front wow. of like a thousand people. With your math rock band. <laughs> yeah. math rock band. I literally had been playing drums for six months. I started when I was 19 and this is like when I was like 19 and a half. Uh-huh. You know? And it was the most terrifying I really fully blacked out <laughs> and then came out the other side and people loved it and thought it was great and it was fine but I, I they made the, I was so ignorant. I, Rod Morgenstein sets up his giant oh drum God. kit, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh, and I was like, I remember like asking because I didn't know any of the, you know, how do you handle yourself at a show or like, you know, and they were like, um, yeah, I was like, well, where do I set? Like his drum set was so big, and the stage was not like huge. It was. <laughs> I had to set my drum set. I was like, where do I put my drums? And the guy was like, right there. <laughs> I remember being confused thinking like that set seems really large how is he going to take that away now that they've sound checked and then put it back after we're done you know what I mean? like, I just, <laughs> that won't be happening you're right so then I set up I remember I set up on the front of the stage like you know if this is the stage here like I was his kit is like all this and then I had to, I remember my kick, my kick I was afraid that my kick drum was going to move forward and then fall off the front of the stage and I wanted to hide so bad behind the lights like you do as a drummer and but with the way the lighting was set up like I was lit up like I was the lead singer <laughs> like everything about it was just the most upside down horrific thing ever but anyway Dixie Drags Trial yes, trial by Drags Trial by Drags um, God what a terrifying band they were terrifying so good incredible um, 
anyway, all that sort of thing is in there. But mainly, it's it's a it's you know it's not it's a singer songwriter album by a dude who's rock obsessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So and then the places that you, so I mean when I met you you lived in New York. Yeah. And how long were you in New York for? I wondered if you even met me when I was in San Francisco. No. Uh-huh. No. Definitely New York. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. Where were you from originally? Where were you born? I was born in upstate New York. Oh, okay. Uh, in Schenectady, New York. Uh huh. Um, and how long were you in New York when you met Brian? I don't know. I've been there maybe just a couple of years. I moved there in 2003. I had been in San Francisco for a long time before that. And um, back when it was cool. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> arguably, arguably. Yeah, when before was, when it was feasible. Before the dot com, right? Boom, yeah, when way. it was possible. Maybe yeah, it was exactly. Better way to and I had been in the in a great apartment in Haight Ashbury, right in the middle of Haight, for about uh-huh. for a long time, and I had a killer apartment. And I had some friends who yeah. had a place right at. They were at for years. They were right at like Fulton and Divisadero, like sure. right in that area. That's my hood. Where yeah. Like near where the John Coltrane Church was. Oh and yeah, all that right. Stuff. Sure, absolutely. That's yeah. That was like I love that. I love that whole. I loved San Francisco back in that time I just thought it was like amazing it was but, pretty cool but you, and it was the rent was you know by those standards back then the rent was crazy to them but nothing like it is nothing now like of course it. My, thing, you know? my, my place was like uh, 750 bucks a month yeah and it was a one bedroom with a loft I mean it was crazy yeah uh, no and of course that's that, amazing that whole area man was so bohemian first mm. of all yes yeah, because yeah, everyone it, was living with you know five roommates right and, you know so it these was guys were doing that too fully bohemian yeah. you know yeah. the, the one you know in one room there's a dude who's you know who plays tabla and djembe, you know, uh, in the next room, there's the, you know, performance artist. Almost right. like they have a quota they have to meet. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. was, and it was great, man. I had some, uh, when I moved there. I don't there, see any mimes. <laughs> when I moved there, yeah. my, I, had a bunch of, I had a bunch of friends, you were all, you know, living in these sort of bohemian houses, yeah. and that's who I stayed with when I first moved that's there. That's awesome. And just was like, wow, man, these people are cool. You know, there's this Bulgarian kid who plays jazz guitar, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's just, and I suppose, you know, I'm sure it's, I don't know if San Francisco is still like that today, but, you know, there's still wonderful communities of bohemian kids fresh out of college or, mm-hmm. or not mm-hmm. who are moving to the cities, getting roommates, and starting the same uh, adventure that we, frankly, all started yeah. on. And um, It's funny how you, you can know. look back at that stuff and be like, oh, I, I really miss, like, the just being around all these, inf- you know, incubation kind of periods of all these people coming and going and, you know, all that. And then you th- remember like, oh yeah, there were, we had like four roommates in one bathroom. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like, okay, I'm good, I'm good. There's a time for that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in, to your question about the starter kit, I'd say Roto's Magic Act is a good start. Yeah. And um, uh, this new band, it's not that new at this point, it's about three years old, called 100 Hounds that I've been working yeah. very hard on mm-hmm. for a while. You know, after I did Roto's Magic Act, I, I loved it. I had a great experience with it. It got some amazing press, uh, partly thanks to my working alongside a really great publicist named Monica Seide from a company called Speakeasy PR. She also handles Tool and the Melvins and a lot of really much harder stuff. Yeah. But I had always liked her and thought she was great, and she helped me work on this record. And having been a journalist, I had a lot of my own contacts. So mm-hmm. it was ideal because I got to, you know, sort of, but, but a proper publicist, again, paying somebody mm-hmm. yeah. uh, gives you a lot of leverage. It, it makes a project a lot more legit. So hmm. I decided, again, to spend some money. Right, these, 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 and, these machinations are yeah, in place for a reason. Yeah, and she really helped, and the album got a lot of great press. Uh, sometime around 2004, 14, 15, I got, was on a gig and I met this incredible singer. We we were both subbing on a uh, like a rock and soul wedding gig. 
uh, out in Long Island with a really terrific wedding band uh, called Dexter Lake, who got a lot of attention from the New York Times, among others, as sort of the hipster wedding band. Uh, and uh, it was an incredible set of music. It was uh, Stevie Wonder, ACDC, Guns N' Roses, Sam Cooke, you name it. And before the gig, everyone said, so, you know, you're going to have this dude, uh, Colin Smith, singing. And uh, you haven't sung with him before. He's Irish. You guys will get along great. It's going to be great. I'm like, all right. Because right. I'd, I'd sung with, I had done gigs with a lot of other singers. And I'd done some of the singing myself. And um, sure enough, we do the gig. And, you know. Whether it's the soul stuff, the R&B stuff, or the heavy rock stuff. I'm talking, you know, uh, You Shook Me by yeah. ACDC, which mm-hmm. women can't sing. Yeah. And this guy is destroying it. <laughs> destroying it. The R&B chops were just insane, the tone of his voice. And sure enough, you know, halfway through the set, we're at a wedding, right? And he and I are doing the back-to-back page and plant <laughs> shit and everything. And I'm like, uh, I think I'm in love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. And uh, on the way home from the gig, we have good buddy Paul Amaris, great drummer who also plays on the Roto's Magic Act record. He goes, have you guys heard the band Rivals Sons? I said, no, I haven't heard him. And he goes, you guys got to hear him because you and Colin, man, you, you guys could crush something like this. You know, classic sort of Zeppelin style four piece. And he puts it on. And I don't know if you guys have heard Rival Sons, mm-hmm. but if you haven't, please. They're here. Uh, they live here. Or at least uh, the singer, Jay Buchanan, lives here. Uh, he put on the song Pressure and Time by Rival Sons. And it was like somebody just gave me back my youth or something huh. like it is smoking there's like mm. an hgh injection oh proper <laughs> proper old school rock and roll wow. produced by the wonderful dave cobb mm. who's also right here in mm. nashville and i believe mm-hmm. he's the uh chief engineer at rca studios mm-hmm. now uh chris stapleton's producer Right. Heard of him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. one Grammy for Chris Stapleton. Mm-hmm. So people Sturgill are, too, right? And Sturgill. Yeah, yeah, Everyone yeah. associates him with Sturgill and Chris, and that's yeah. that's fair. Those are knockout knockout records. Mm. But his he's also happens to produce the best rock and roll albums America's put out in the last twenty years. Whoa, probably, in okay. my opinion, and that's that's Rival Sons, absolutely yeah. earth shattering. And when I heard that. I looked at Colin. And he's like, if you put it together, you know, I have a feeling it's going to be good. And it has been. It's been really amazing. And for me, it's been great because I don't sing at all. Uh-huh. I can't sing that stuff. Yeah. I can sing, you know, stuff in the Bowie to Tom Petty range to Stones, Beatles. The human range. <laughs> the human yeah. range. But that power thing, that Paul yeah. Rogers to David Coverdale to Jeff Buckley kind of thing, uh-huh. John Legend say, I can't. That's I can't do that. To have that much velocity behind yeah, that the Chris range. Cornell thing. Yeah. And if you're going to do a band like that, damn it, you need to have yeah. the singer. You can't fake that stuff. Yeah. Damn the falsetto doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or like when they when they get up to that range, and then all of a sudden it's like f- like half the decibels are coming out. It's like okay, you're kind of hitting the notes, <laughs> yeah, but I can't no, hear no. you anymore. No. Yeah. And yeah. I gave you guys the Hundred Hounds live yeah. record. That's five songs live and. Uh, play the song Day 100 at some point and yeah. you'll, you'll get an idea of what I mean. But he's just, and I'm very happy with it. And it's, I'd always wanted to do a band in that classic four piece, free Bad Company Zeppelin yeah. mold. But obviously, with some attention to postmodern concerns. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, so, so, so the album's not like an hour and a half long. No, this yeah. is a really short album. The, the full <laughs> album is actually almost an hour, though. It's, uh, it's because of the live? 
No, the studio oh, album, which studio we've album. just finished mastering and should be out in October, in uh, November. Yeah, that's so and, great. And uh, some of the songs are you know five six minutes. Some of them are much shorter, but <laughs> it awesome. definitely has the epic you know, Hammer of the Gods imprint, <laughs> imprint on it, which I am I am not apologizing for everybody. <laughs> See, that's that, you know I, I'm glad for that because if you know I. I I've been sort of reconciling this, I think, with a lot of the things that I do, where it's like, uh, I've never been like in a rock band making concept records, but I've certainly been very conceptual about longer form electronic kind of work. Um, and I think about records I was making 15 years ago, and it would definitely be, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And that's stuff that is considered normal back then. Right, right. Uh, but maybe for certain types of music, you had to, I mean, it was very um, detail oriented and, and very carved out. It wasn't just like, uh, loop on repeat type stuff, right? Yep. Um, but now it's just getting to the point where it's like, if you can't get in and out in like a couple of minutes, it's hard to like even get anybody <sighs> yeah. to give a shit. And then ultimately, now with everything being the having such a visual premium, if there's not, you know, have you been up against that at all? Like, where it's like, how much, uh, and I'm not talking about just like live footage, right? But like, really. I feel like that there's this other premium now for for visual conception that is on another level at this point. Design is super important. We do with Hundred Hounds. We do have a really great designer uh, friend in Berlin who has been designing for us. His name is Morris. Yeah, and this, uh, this and, is um, beautifully minimal, by the way. Yeah, yeah. That, that was that was his that was his idea to go very minimal. And I think we'll be yeah. doing something pretty similar. But there's for, very subtle things about this design that are really banging. I mean, this he's, is he's sharp. He's yeah. really sharp. I knew I wanted very clean, well, we knew we wanted clean white, black and white on the outside, but just like, it's the sort of the inverse of the Roto's Magic Act record, which the guys don't know that I was thinking in the back of my head, but uh, <laughs> with the Roto's oh. Magic Act, I wanted this explosive Harry Potter sort of exterior yeah. with lots of color, and then I wanted everything to evaporate like no the nowhere man scene in Yellow Submarine. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I was getting into, I was speaking more really about actual video. Oh yeah, and well, yeah. you know, we we we're make we made a lot of them. Uh, we made a black and white yeah. ones, and we're sort of trotting them out as yeah. the record. Because um, now it gets it, released. Yeah. It's just it seems like it's equal, if not like. Oh my God! It's the currency of the internet. Let's yeah. be perfectly honest. Yeah. Uh, if you, you ever get freaked out though, like I think about, I feel like I could have been a different person if if YouTube existed when I was a kid, because I think about all the things I had deep curiosity about that are just fully of it. like now it's like every day somebody sends you like oh check out this isolated bass track from this Who record or whatever right, yeah. like just shit that like if I had access to that, that kind of material in my sort of persistent research because I mean I would go to the library go to the card catalog yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was like you know like it, you had to really I, I, would, I would go to the Wake Forest University library find the CDs, records, tapes, whatever sure. uh, that I needed and books. And then I would go to like the ninth story bathroom where they always had the window open and I would throw them out the window <laughs> and then go down and then walk out. Cause I was like 14. I wasn't even supposed to be in this library or whatever. <laughs> and then walk around into the bushes and collect everything. And then like I would go and then research it all and then and then I'd bring it all back, right? And just drop <laughs> it off. Well, maybe you wouldn't work as hard if you didn't have to do that. And maybe the, the easy access to information would I don't know, sort of weaken your (laughs) your inspiration to go after this Uh, stuff. I mean, we all pretty much had to do that back in the day. mm -hmm. And I I know that, uh, I think that for those of us who grew up in the mechanical age, there is some, uh, there is some sort of... uh, Like an ethic about it or something? No, it's almost like there's some phantom limb quality to Uh, not 
always having the physical object in front of us, which mm. is why we still love vinyl records and things like that, yeah. because it feels, it fills in the cracks. Digital, I feel sometimes, I'm not complaining about it exactly, but it, it leaves you with a bit of a feeling like something is missing and you're not sure what, what it is. Maybe it's just the physical object itself. Uh, the pictures, the smell of an album, the cognitive something. slow walk you're doing to approaching something new, as opposed to just like clicking on it and being met with it. You know, yeah. Like you had to like unwrap something, and then you had to sort mm-hmm. of examine something, and then you had to sort of dial in your whatever, and then get all this set. And you yeah. sort of it it ramps you into a cognition, I think, that yeah. it, that mm-hmm. is different than just like. Ah! Spotify knows what I love. This but, is freaking me out. But you also yeah. said that you know you have to get in and out with things. Like yeah. with music and yeah. stuff and be very quick yeah that I'm not delighted by that I, I always say I'm a big believer in long form rock music mm-hmm. I like long songs uh-huh Actually, I like albums too. Yes, right? I, and I, I don't really understand anybody who doesn't understand that. I mean, it's just like <laughs> who doesn't love. I mean, that's the whole point is for it to go from the first song to the last song, and it's a whole thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a, a, it's what a, are we yeah. doing? I thought that's what we were doing. But all our brains, all our <laughs> brains were sort of carved to do that, though. And yeah. people's it's, brains now are not being carved. Yeah, to do you that. want to make a body of work if you're an yeah. artist, and I don't mean yeah. in the capital A sense. I mean just in whatever the generic way we use the term artist. You're a yeah. creative person. You want to make a body of work yeah i don't want yeah. to make a song yeah i want to make i don't want to just write a, a, an, a an aphorism yeah i mm. want to write a novel maybe mm-hmm. it's, it's funny um i mean yeah you want a nice i believe in the album yeah i believe the album makes us better <laughs> i believe so i really too. do i believe it makes us yeah. smarter yeah uh to be honest it's funny this just came to mind that one of the biggest influences on the roto's magic act record was um, David Mitchell's novel Cloud Atlas. Uh, have you? I don't know if you guys have read that freaking novel. Oh my God, what a beast of a novel! Hmm. So it takes place in several different time periods. It's the most virtuosic novel I've ever read. Mm-hmm. It knocked me out, it, and, and it put me in mind of sort of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the mm-hmm. Moon in many ways, with its journey quality mm-hmm. and the way it almost seems to take place in different times and different spaces. Mm-hmm. And so I used both of those as kind of a template for what I was trying to do with that record. Now I know that sounds as pretentious as my essay on being a Renaissance <laughs> man <laughs> for Benetton. Close second, but that's fine. But, <laughs> but it's but it's really true. I yeah, had just yeah. read that it's novel right and I was like, yeah. wow, look what this person achieved. Yeah, it's okay. Okay, folks, a little ambition in your work yeah. is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? A little pretension. Yeah. If somebody's, oh, don't be so afraid of people thinking you might be a little right. pretentious. Maybe you're going for it a little bit. Yeah. I think sometime, you know, after prog rock and everything, punk rock sort of really put the kibosh on pretension. And mm. punk rock ethics have basically ruled the way rock mm. music operates for a very That's a really interesting thought time. that I've never had. That's really interesting. Certainly that. as a guitar that. player and guitar journalist, it's mm. ex- really easy to see. Why exactly is it that the Foo Fighters have had maybe one short guitar solo in 25 years of music mm-hmm. making? Mm-hmm. And they're virtuosic. Why? And, and they're, and they're, Why? Yeah. Yeah. Why has Green Day never had a guitar solo? <laughs> These guys are talented up the wazoo they're incredible mm. why are there no guitar solos do you think yeah. it's like a, an apprehension about just the notion of expression no i think that <laughs> it's punk rock ethics and it has to and it, it 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 guitar playing in the late 80s especially 
hit such an apex of technical <laughs> yeah. virtuosity. That's who to blame, by the way. They wore that well, shit out. Well, there's no yeah. question they're Neil part Sean, of we're talking it. to you. <laughs> and you know, Joe Satriani and Steve I, these names yeah. almost became dirty words yeah, around yeah. that. But believe uh-huh. me, I was there, man. Yngwie Malmsteen. Yeah, yeah, I started, you know, I first started at Guitar Player in 91. Mm. So I remember this, this crossover point yeah, right. where from Eddie Van Halen to say, you know, Eddie Vedder. Yngwie Malmsteen, <laughs> yeah. this stuff, and then the the you know the year 1992 the year punk broke as the movie is called uh-huh. right changed everything sonic youth nirvana comes in and so that type of guitar playing really got a bad, bad name it was almost like what happened to prog rock when punk rock first came out in 1977 mm-hmm. we're done with elp and we're done with king crimson and we're done with all that yes mm-hmm. and all that pretentious stuff well it was the same thing but the funny thing is punk rock ethics have utterly and completely ruled what we call modern rock now for a mm-hmm. very very long time. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. If you are doing what they call modern rock radio or the modern rock charts, there's a few rules, and I've talked to producers who, who will tell you tell me this. Okay, this doesn't include Gary Clark Jr. and Alabama Shakes and Rival Sons and the Temperance Movement and bands like that. But modern rock charts, yeah. you know, everything from Good Charlotte to, you know, you name it, no blues. No blues. Right there's the fucking hugest problem, yeah, by the way. Yeah, big problem. No blues. <laughs> now, the, maybe a slight exception is if you do uh, indie blues. So, John Spencer to, say, um, uh, um, I was going to say White Stripes, but there's a band in between. We all mm. know um, the, the Duotone Jets. or Was it the big influence on Jack White? Um, Flat Duo Jets? Flat Duo Jets, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that very important band, actually. Really important band. Uh, and then... Than white stripes, so there's blues straight through there. Uh-huh. I mean, there Indeed. is, but it's a certain way of doing the blues that is utterly diametrically opposed to the Stevie Ray Vaughan thing. Uh-huh. Okay, that it's more of tantrum as opposed to romance. Yeah, exactly. It's bursts of sound. It's uh, well put. fuzz pedals. <laughs> yeah, man, it's yeah. fuzz pedals that are broken or have huge amounts of character. Those mm-hmm. value systems are still very much at work in the way we produce rock music today, uh-huh. and it can be tough to work against them if you want to. Um, I am a classicist, mm-hmm. I dare say. Um, so I have a funny relationship sometimes with even something like as broad as indie rock mm-hmm. you know or how that's supposed to sound so um, you put it this way I'm a huge Greta Van Fleet fan uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. okay I listen to that band and I think I could not give a flying can I say this on the yeah, podcast oh, yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah, yeah. that they sound like Led Zeppelin uh-huh. yeah really they sound like Led Zeppelin oh yeah. really so 20 years after Mozart, if someone came out crushing Mozart, you would fucking complain about it? They're like 21 years old. They're as fantastic players with a tight, beautiful, nuanced interplay as musicians. Their grooves are puffy and cool yeah. and, and and gentle and hard at the same time yeah. the singer comes in hosting over the top beautifully <laughs> the guitar players nibbling at these little lines yeah. that you know evoke the Jimmy Page of 68 yeah not the bonehead kingdom come fucking thing that came out years oh, like the 80s that. the 80s that. version yeah, yeah, yeah. you know yeah, where yeah. everyone was like just hit hard gate the drum no this yeah, is yeah. nuanced yeah I say be sort of puffy vintage mm. style playing with mm. they're like 22 years old Nuts. this is fantastic yeah. folks mm-hmm. don't don't be troubled yeah. <laughs> I see people like oh hey I don't want to hear anything more about this band hey honestly given that virtually everyone that age 
is tripping over themselves to sound either like, you know, a new... Uh, Blink 182 or mm-hmm. God bless them, I love them, but Jimmy Eat World or sort of a post emo <laughs> yeah. thing. Yes. Um, or they're trying to sound like Skrillex or somebody. Yeah, right. I will take the Greta Van Fleet's. And maybe yeah. I'm just one of those, yeah. you know, old guys who wants to hear the kids doing what I grew up on. <laughs> but that is a that's a fantastic group who are yeah. really playing. Rival yeah. Sons are the same way. And those those are those are older cats, but they but you know, they're doing the same thing. Also, no click track. Mm-hmm. You know, really, you know, the drummer sets the damn tempo. Putting it down. You know. Yeah, I, I, it's it's been I've been in this sort of uh, exploration of what I used to listen to when I was 19 or 20 to figure out. I do this periodically where I'm like, what was actually good? and had something to say and then what was actually terrible and why you know I can see why I liked it at the time but this is a joke um, but one band that I actually just went back and listened to yesterday that I, I just it popped in my brain and I wasn't even necessarily like a huge fan but they had one big record big at the time I guess not that big but bigger than any of the others that I was aware of but the band Quicksand oh yeah, yeah sure and I remember hearing them back in 92 and being like okay this is actually like um, my only problem with them at that time is it wasn't like hard enough like I feel like they were kind of copying the sort of amphetamine reptile helmet kind of tar Mm -hmm. uh, sort of thing you can tell they had been in a a lighter spirited kind of modality and then all that stuff hit and they were like we gotta like double down on some of these you know tunings or whatever the fuck you know but I hear all that stuff and then I hear like what the what, you know people around me are playing that are a lot younger that are these you know kind of that Jimmy World kind of infused mm-hmm. kind of uh, Blink-182 continuation stuff and I realized that wow and I told these guys the other, the other day I was like you should check out Quicksand because everything you're playing just basically sounds like Quicksand you know <laughs> and then they go check it out and they're like holy shit you know <laughs> so it works both ways right like you can get you can want that those those sort of periods to continue but you also want to make sure that people know where stuff came from in the same way that when you sat down with Jimmy Page and he's like okay so there's this thing called the blues <laughs> and this is where we started you know it's uh, funny how this is a continuum though because I remember um, uh, in the late 80s I had a my sort of my first band out of college was a band called Roto Explosion <laughs> and uh, I remember we did a gig um, somewhere and you know I was 20 whatever 20 years old or something and I remember an older cat who would be me now yeah uh came up to us after the show and said with a slight sniff um i don't know if you've listened to them but pretty much everything you're doing (laughs) comes from big star (laughs) (laughs) oh wow and i said i've never heard of them (laughs) thank you very this is well before the big star Mm -hmm. we all rediscovered big star yeah Mm -hmm. so i went on found some big star found radio city and record number one and all that stuff and the guy was right and i said you know what (laughs) he's pretty much right and i became kind of a big star obsessive for a long time Mm -hmm. and discovered that he was right and then sure enough uh clearly rem was quite influenced by that and the posies were quite influenced by that Mm -hmm. and uh, my whole generation jellyfish quite influenced by that and you know next thing you know like yeah okay generally generationally for some reason Big Star was was one of those bands, so I guess this stuff goes in in waves to some degree, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Yeah, which is strange, right? Yeah, why? Yeah. Why? What's in the air? It's some weird critical mass yeah. thing that yeah. happens. Speaking of great bands from the past that sometimes get overlooked, um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I am part of a very exciting new incarnation of the amazing '70s rock band Humble Pie. Whoa. Yeah. Now, if there's a better guitar band than Humble Pie, I don't know who it is. 
because Humble Pie, for those who don't know, was a band that started in 1969, 68, late 68, 69, um, with Steve Marriott, who at that time had just quit the Small Faces, who were the biggest mod band in Britain. Not the Who. And who? The Small uh, Faces. And What's-His-Face came out of... Uh, who's the, the other... Who were the other small... Who were the other faces? Small Faces was uh, Kenny Jones on drums, mm-hmm. uh, Ian McLagan and Ronnie Lane. Uh, and when Steve quit the Small Faces, the Small Faces did a smart thing and got Ron Wood and Rod Stewart to join them. Mm-hmm. Took the small off their name and became the Faces. Mm-hmm. So what did Steve do? A little bit larger. Well, Steve, Steve is a fascinating, fascinating figure, and I think he's the great missing link in rock music myself. Mm-hmm. And so he quits the Small Faces during a show, <laughs> and for the year previous, he had been cultivating this incredible extraordinary young talent named named Peter Frampton Mm. 17 year old kid he was a lead singer of a group called The Herd sort of mod psychedelic group who worshipped the small faces you know and he was kind of cultivating Peter and trying to put a band together around him and he was going to produce him but uh, he had found a 17 year old drummer named Jerry Shirley who would end up becoming good friends with David Gilmour and plays drums on the second Sid Barrett record (laughs) interestingly but he was wanted to put together a band with Peter and Jerry Shirley and a bass player named Greg Ridley, who was in the band Spooky Tooth at the time. But when he quits the Small Faces, he calls up Peter. <laughs> he says, Oi, Peter, I've just quit the Small Faces. Can I join your band? <laughs> and of course, Peter, who worshipped him, said, of God, of course you're Steve Marriott. Of course you can join your band. And that band, I think partly because... They had all been in fairly high-profile bands, and here they were suddenly demoted to just starting out again. They called themselves Humble Pie. Mm. And they put out two records on Immediate, which was Andrew Lug Oldham's label, the manager of the Stones. He had a label called Immediate, and they were immediately signed to that. Hey, Immediate. And um, <laughs> put out two incredible records before they then ended up on A&M. But here you've got Peter Frampton, who might be the most criminally underrated guitar player in British rock history. Seriously. So he's 1819 on these early Humble Pie mm-hmm. records, and he is crushing it. Mm. He is like a cross between Jimmy Page and Larry Coryell, mm-hmm. oh. or 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 uh, Jimmy Page and uh, someone like um, uh, uh, Larry Carlton or something. Like a, a guy who's got some jazz things going on, uh-huh. but is also steeped in the blues rock. Like, of a, like a more Page. like a slightly playful expository blues rock. Yeah, 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 but like a blues rock jazz guy, like someone who's yeah. clearly got the Clapton-Peter Green thing together, but also has got some Kenny Burrell in there. Mm-hmm. Like just an amazing player. It's The riffs are fantastic. Hum- Humble Pie ended up becoming, I mean, this made, Gene Simmons has often said Husk, uh, that Humble Pie was the biggest influence on Kiss. And there's no, there's almost no question. They took the Humble Pie thing and kind of bammed it, you know, just sort of simplified it, made it more sort of pop and very direct. Punk ethos. But Gene Simmons' voice, especially, mm. straight up Greg Ridley, the bass player from uh. Spooky Tooth, and Paul Stanley's voice, especially his in-between song banter, you know, all the famous, come on, yeah. people! Yeah. <laughs> well, that was Steve Marriott. Uh-huh. Steve Marriott would sing to the people, are you ready? Are you ready for our next song? He would do all that stuff. And that's where Paul Stanley basically got, got his whole preaching yeah. thing. Yeah. Exactly. So, a couple months ago, I got a call from a friend, Jimmy Coons, in New York, uh, see if I was interested in 
playing with humble pie. I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> but it turns out Jerry Shirley, the drummer, has been trying to put another incarnation of the band together for a while, but he's had some hip issues and he hasn't been able to play yet. But it turns I believe there was another band that was going to tour as Humble Pie because he was in danger of losing the copyright. Oh. Right? So he also had an incarnation of the band in 2001 with Greg Ridley, the original bass player who has passed away since. Steve Marriott passed away in 91. Um, Frampton left the band in 71, so he's long gone from that stable in, in a way. Um, anyway, he also had a guitar player named Dave Bucket Caldwell, who was the guitarist for Bad Company for 11 years. Mm. Uh, was Mick Ralph's right-hand man, but then took over as the main guitarist in Bad Company during a very healthy stretch for the band with a couple sensational records in the 90s. Uh, anyway, he tasked Bucket with putting together a new incarnation of the band to go out on the road so they could hold on to the copyright and wait for Jerry, hopefully, to come back and begin to be able to play. Uh, and I was asked to join it. Um, and I remember wow. I wrote to, to Bucket and I said, so. I just want to make sure I'm, we're clear about the guitar duties because, you know, I'm assuming you're probably going to play most of the leads, whatever. You want me to play rhythm? I, I you know, Jesus, I, I'd, I'd probably guitar tech for Humble Pie. Mm. And he said, no, 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 you're doing the Frampton solos. Oh. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I dove in and I have, you know, I've learned almost all the solos note for note. And then in places where it seems to be the correct spirit to sort of blow in the style of. Yeah. Uh, Peter's thing was that he was a very modal player. So for those who know their mixolydian mode from their uh, Dorian mode, etc., he he liked to mix modes and he liked to play on the chord. Even if you listen to Frampton Comes Alive, this is really outstanding guitar playing. Mm. This is no, Peter Frampton is no joke. Mm. Uh, he's, we think of him as a teen idol, I guess, because of, he, you know, he it was, I think it's still the best-selling live album of all time, maybe mm. the second now, but. Um, and people think of that, the the voice box thing as yes. like a gimmicky thing. Yeah, but he's, he's kind of, he's kind of one of those guys who's like, you know, it's like the things that he's, supremely well known for yeah. don't necessarily inspire this deeper understanding of yeah. the, his actual maestro ability. He, <laughs> he, he was a, a phenom. Mm -hmm. He was playing at age 17 or 18 stuff that I'm still grappling with now. Yeah. It's really incredible. And also interesting story. Frampton's dad was the art teacher at the high school where Frampton went to school with a young kid named David Jones, mm. who later became David yeah. Bowie. And Frampton and Bowie used to hang out in the steps uh -huh. of the school and play guitar together. And his dad was their art teacher. That's interesting. I think Whoa. he. I Frampton's think, dad taught David Bowie yeah. art. I think we're. <laughs> folks! <laughs> I'm trying to this like, is wild. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. it was in the late 80s. <laughs> it, was after, it was after sort of. After like Let's Dance, mm -hmm. Bowie had an album called. Is it the Serious Moonlight Tour? Is that what I'm thinking of? Maybe. I but he did that. a tour, and Peter Frampton toured with him as his that's guitar correct, player. That's correct. That's yeah. right. Thank you for reminding yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's really because at my age, at that like I was in high school at that time, and I knew who Peter Frampton was because my cousins had Frampton Comes Alive. Yep. But everyone I, had it, right? But yeah. By the time I was in high it came school, came with turntables. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't. I knew. I was more into my own music and into music in general and so then when I realized and I love David Bowie of course and when I realized he was touring with David Bowie I'm like what the Peter Frampton's gonna play guitar like for him yeah, like and yeah, I realized yeah, yeah. at that time that it's like oh he's a fucking monster guitar he's the kind of guy you bring to play guitar he's not just a guy who sings songs he, you know what I mean he won a Grammy award yeah. a few years ago for his instrumental solo album 
Jeez. for best instrumental album. He used to live here in Nashville. He still for years. does. Does he really? I, I went to see him a few, maybe a month or two ago at uh, the okay. uh, at the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, wow. Opryland, and yeah. uh, he was absolutely fantastic. And as passionate and you know. Um, Joyful, a guitar uh-huh. player who still loves to improvise. He had another guy, another guy in his band, great Nashville guitar player, total monster, you know. Mm-hmm. And Frampton's toe to toe with him the whole night. They're playing off each other. You mm-hmm. can see this guy lives and loves. So, yeah, he's not some the guitar tired, and, propped up sort of yeah. facsimile of his former self. Like, yeah. He's still deeply engaged. Yeah, yeah. And, and for people who like Led Zeppelin and and like. Uh, classic rock but maybe haven't checked out Humble Pie if you like Greta Van Fleet (laughs) (laughs) they're a great missing link band too and and their stuff is entertaining and it's it's pretty raw they never touched on the mystic sort of fields of gnomes and shit like like Zeppelin did you know I love them for it but uh, Humble Pie doesn't doesn't, (laughs) Humble Pie doesn't do that they're much grittier and and sort of gutsy and raw and Mm -hmm. a lot of people have heard I Don't Need No Doctor that was Mm -hmm. a really big song for them Um, so now, with Frampton and all these other guitar players you talked about, we would be remiss to not touch on uh, your Stompbox project. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. So can we talk about that for a minute uh, before we, we, we move uh, into the, 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 the joys and pleasures of Nashville traffic? <laughs> sure. The Stompbox book. So um, a couple months ago, uh, a good friend here in Nashville, a guitarist and a guitar writer named Michael Ross, who's written for Guitar Player and Premier Guitar for years, um, uh, suggested I contact a guy named Elon Paz. He's an Israeli photographer uh, and motorcycle enthusiast who um, mm. had done a book in 2013 and four, I think it was 2014, which has been a big publishing phenom. It's called Dust and Grooves. And for you vinyl collectors um, like you, Brian, I think, um, it's an amazing book. of It's a photo essay book, basically, of people who collect vinyl. And Questlove is in there. Plenty of celebrity type folks and DJs, but also just lots of interesting eccentric folks who have zillions upon zillions of records. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, and he wanted to do a book where he took that same photo essay approach to guitar guitar pedals as objet d'art. Mm-hmm. The guitar yeah. pedal, not just from the way, you know, I've always thought of it from sort of a guitar magazine standpoint, like, how'd you get that sound? Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. Sure, the recipes. But, but his thing is like the historical value of these things. I mean, that's. Uh, you're looking at Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth's uh, Ibanez DM4 delay that was used on, you know, um, I think that one was probably used on Goo and and, and some of those fantastic records. Uh, and you can see it's beat up. It's got tape on it with his notes on it. I mean, yeah. up close and really beautifully photographed, these things take on a very different quality. What are they? They're tools but they're tools that have been beat up on the road in the studio. They're, they're things that have been sort of struggled with. They're things that have been mastered. They're things that have created beauty. They're, they're fetish items in a way. There's a, the other card you have there is Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machines, uh, original uh, Digitech whammy pedal, which is where he got all those incredible like DJ meets alien space, spacecraft sounds on Killing in the Name of. And yeah. it went, uh, yeah. That's how he did it. Uh, Dimebag Daryl of Pantera, of course, played that pedal. Lots of Jack White plays mm. one. But Tom kind of, man, if anybody imp- set the, the imprint for that pedal, it's him. So I was originally just going to write a few pieces, um, uh, including Jack White uh, here in town, who 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 is... Uh, 
who's told us he wants to be part of the book and wants us to shoot some of his pedals and stuff. Um, but then uh, as Alan and I began talking, he said, I think you get this. I think you get that this is... This is so up your alley that it's insane. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of insane. And, yeah. I, and he said, I think, you, I think you get what I'm trying to do. Uh, and I want to know if you would like to uh, be the editorial director for the book. And um, I knew it would be a lot of work but I decided it was the kind of exactly the kind of big piece of chunk of work and responsibility that I should I should do right now, and it mm-hmm. it makes sense. And we're working really hard on it. We've got thirty five players already in the book: Andy Summers, Joe Satriani, oh. uh, Lee Ronaldo, Vernon Reed, Dean DeLeo, um, John Frusciante. Um, and this is great too because you're not trying to pull stuff out of people that they, it's gonna be hard for them to talk about. This is the shit that they want to show and yes. tell and talk about. This is like. Wait, you really want to know more deeply about just, can I just John we can just focus on this? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, yeah. awesome. And we're not taking pictures of them. Yeah. Elon yeah. is not going there to photograph them looking, you know, looking good or bad or anything. No, no, no. He's going to photograph these things as objects of objet d'art, basically. And the book will be large, not as big as Dustin Groove's thing, which is a bit bigger, but still a big coffee table book. Yeah. We're looking at like 400 pages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, fresh interviews for every story. Um, I'll be interviewing Trey Anastasio and Peter Frampton, and I'm going after Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath and you like, know, uh, lots of other awesome. people. Brian Setzer. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if Setzer is such a pedal man. See, some players are more. He's a tape echo guy, though. Is he? That's of course he is. He would be slapback uh, rockabilly. Interesting. Style. Yeah. Good yeah. call. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. <laughs> I'll take an acknowledgement. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's the kind of thing. A trademark. Steve Turner of Mud Honey. You know, we want to get his original um, Big Muff and um, you know all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so we've already got a bunch of great people in the book. I think the project is going really Does anyone, well. Do you have a tube screamer in there somewhere? Oh, there will be a tube. <laughs> to, to be honest, to be honest, what I'm pursuing, one of the things I'm pursuing right now is um, we're mostly trying to do players who are still with us. Mm-hmm. But I would like, and I believe I have a connection through his uh, guitar tech, his original his guitar tech. But um, I want Stevie Ray Vaughan's tube screamer because uh-huh. I think that would be something that a lot of people would really care about because yeah. over the years as guitar players you hear about how Stevie got his tone he got used extremely str- uh, heavy strings on a Strat like 13s on top mm-hmm. which is ridiculous you mm-hmm. can't you can't bend that mm-hmm. let alone bend it a, 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 a whole step and a half yeah yeah what? yeah on 13s how did he do it right mm-hmm. um, uh, but a, a lot of people you know wow that's Stevie Ray Vaughan's fucking tube screamer mm-hmm. That's on cold shot. What are you kidding me? Like things yeah. like that. That's what. That's will what there be duplicates, going. right? Like because there might be like the rat pedal that was used in this way versus the rat pedal used by another person in another genre. You know, we're trying to avoid duplicates, but invariably, I think there will be some. We'll just have to do a case by case basis. Also, in some cases, there are dudes who have their own signature pedal, like the Jerry Cantrell of, of Allison Chains. You know, he's got his own Dunlop signature wah wah pedal. Mm. The original pedal he used was was the was a Dunlop Crybaby uh, GCB ninety five dork, <laughs> and uh, but you know so Nerd maybe alert. we'll shoot that. But then again, if we had a prototype, you know, of his original one, that's also of historical value. Like, how did this thing come together? Yeah, it's so identified. And what were the specific you know the specifications that he wanted? Or totally. Whatever? But this yeah. is the idea of the book. It's guitarists are funny. You know, we we are always on to the new thing mm-hmm. with sounds. And we're never satisfied with our tone, ever, 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 mm-hmm. ever. And, and most, no most one people that are the partners of guitar players are like, I don't, I haven't heard anything different <laughs> yeah. ever in my yeah. life. <laughs> oh no, I've swapped out the entire pedal board. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds exactly yeah. the same. Still haven't heard anything different. <laughs> yeah. So that's anyway, that's the story with Stompbox and, and we're looking at a late 2019 release, I believe for a deluxe edition. 
and then 2020 for the Random House uh, 10 Speed Press so is publishing it. So um, I- I'm excited about it. Uh, have a lot of work to do between yeah them. <laughs> i'm going to be asking for a review copy <laughs> yeah so i don't, i think we're probably getting to the end of our time yeah, here we but are. i just wanted to mention something quick if i can sure. and that is the uh you know the the name of this podcast is art fight mm. and I, I think that's really interesting you've also had people on the show who do martial arts and yeah. stuff or people that are musicians that are also martial artists or people that are painters that are you know yeah. authors or yeah so but yeah in my case you know um, I'm also a soccer player yeah oh. and um, I do sometimes think about uh, the way that one engages on the field and the way that one engages with art on a couple levels and I'll try to make it quick but it's like no rush man we can break this up into two parts one of the things mm-hmm. you notice on the field or in combat is is the same thing you notice in meditation which is mental chatter that inhibits your performance mm-hmm. just does if you're on the soccer field and you know you've got some life in you on the field but suddenly your foot hurts a little bit or your mind tells you oh man I suck mm-hmm. you know you miss the balls and you're like I suck mm-hmm. man you start saying that stuff to yourself if you are not mindful and you let that chain carry you're you're, you're effed you're, mm-hmm. you're not gonna you're not gonna play well and you're gonna leave really discouraged mm-hmm. I started to do this thing on the soccer field for a while and and again you know I'm in you know, I'm in my 40s at this point and I'm, I'm playing with much younger guys and I'm like I gotta find another way they they may be able to just physically work through the mental chatter but I'm gonna need to do something a little more uh um, Zen informed here, mm-hmm. and I began like using little mantras. Mm-hmm. Uh, you use things like um, strength, skill, and self belief. Mm-hmm. Skill, st- strength, and self belief. Mm-hmm. Skill, strength, and self belief. I feel better already. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would. I would actually do that on the field, just yeah. because we all know if you don't replace negative thoughts with positive ones, you're effed. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying to be uh, Stuart Smalley here, <laughs> but you really. Good enough. What, what, what's, yeah. the, what's the option? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't fill your head with positive affirmations of one kind or another, make them mm-hmm. cool, by all means, man. Make them hip. Yeah. But but you kind of have to do it. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that's something I found in, in the work as well, because it's so easy to second-guess yourself. But man, if you maintain a positive stream of, of uh, thoughts in your head, even if it's bullshit at the beginning... Mm-hmm. It, it, it takes over and has a life of its own. I'm, I'm a huge believer in fake it till you make it. I mean, really, what the hell are we all doing here anyway? Mm-hmm. That's all we're doing. That's all anybody ever does. The president of the United States is doing it. Oh, yeah, he is doing it. Big time. The guy, the, the guy is selling vacuums down the streets doing it. He's like, yeah. I don't know anything about vacuums, yeah. but I'm going to figure it out. I mean, everybody's just... yeah. I don't know, like, you know, that the whole term uh, imposter syndrome, you know? Yes, yes, yes. Like, I'm like, I've... When have I ever felt like wholly and completely anything? Like, yeah. To me, that just seems like a divorce from uh, all reality. Uh, if you just you start with contemplating the universe and work your way back from there, like how, the, <laughs> like, like how are we stuck to this round little pinhead in the universe? I don't know. Just everybody, calm the fuck down and right. Other people are other people <laughs> are accomplished. Yeah, other yeah, people, yeah. other people are successful, stable. 
fully in command of their capabilities, yeah. you know, self-actualized, however you want to put it. But certainly not me. I'm not part of the inner circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That just couldn't be, right? But someday I will be. Someday I will be. Please. <laughs> Come on, fellows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me play, fellows. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so I really can't thank you enough. It's been like welcome, a long man. time coming. Uh, and I always want to try to find uh, ways to hang out with my favorite people. And this seems to be a good way to do it. Man, thanks um, so much. And so uh, it's just always an honor, man. And then um, do you have any uh, like immediate gigs or things coming up where you want to get people to come out? Yeah, you know, uh, Humble Pie starts uh, the second leg of this kind of warm-up tour on uh, October 30th in Atlanta at the City Winery. We're here in Nashville on October 31st, Halloween night at City Winery. Oh, badass. And we'll be playing I Don't Need No Doctor and I'm Ready and uh, all those great songs, um, which would be really exciting. We are hoping Peter Frampton might come out. Uh, if you're out there, Peter, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, oh, that'd be awesome. I'm, he'll, he'll come. I'm dangling it in the universe for you to I'll come. I've, I've even got a three pickup Les Paul for you to, to oh. play. Um, <laughs> extra, extra pedal board. And then from there, we're doing a, a bunch of other cities. Hundred Hounds has a date in Dallas, Texas, on uh, November 17th. Um, so you know, and then there's a tour with the Cringe that starts uh, November 30th through December 7th, and that is very interestingly opening for. Joe Perry. Yeah. Uh, With Brad Whitford of Aerosmith and Gary Sharon of Extreme. They're doing... And for me, it's great because it's a Legends of Boston rock tour in a way. So I'm very happy to be part of that. So awesome. A lot lot going on, man. Joe, you got anything? Um, I'm going to play like a private rock and roll party this weekend at Jared Brennan's backyard. Do you know about this? Yeah. Do you know about this? Oh, no, I was asking me if I knew Jared. I know Jared. Okay. Yeah. Do you know about our party that we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly not. This so has been, this has like, been can something. Can I please suffer this humiliation? This has been something that we've been trying to put. I've got this whole idea for like a, more of like a variety show format for like instead of like songwriter nights or whatever. It's like, why don't we have like an acrobat and a comedian yeah. and da, da, da. So we were trying to put this whole thing together for his backyard. We've kind of pulled it off a little bit. Um, but because it's our friend's backyard, I, I can't just tell everybody in the world. But I will tell you, and I will tell you. And then if anybody, if you want to find me on Twitter, at Mighty Joe Nolan, and you want to DM me, maybe I'll tell you where it is. But it's on Saturday just afternoon. Maybe. We're going to do an early set with my acoustic trio. But there's going to be a bunch of bands there, including Sugar Skulls and some other friends of ours. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah Ben. Mark and tell. Yeah. That's awesome. And then um, I got I got nothing. I got um, I got some photographs in the NBA art show coming up that'll have um, like Black Larad is famous um, muralist coming from Paris to to chief up this show for um, uh, the NBA art show. And I've got like five photographs that'll be in that, and that's coming up in a that's couple cool. weeks. And I can't remember what the dates are. And if you're not in Nashville, you won't see them. But anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah. All right. So thanks again, everybody. Um, I think that we've uh, successfully done our first two-parter, uh, <laughs> and I'm happy because uh, I, I would not want to shortchange you on on uh, your your prescient Renaissance man concepts. <laughs> uh, Thank you, man, and, and uh, love to everybody who's listening. And take care of yourselves during this very trying time in our country's history. We, we need each other more than ever, and uh, we need like-minded people who care and have passion so yeah let us all remember to do that good sentiment to roll out on all right appreciate it we're out
Okay guys, I love the Art Fight podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash Art Fight Podcast. Click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast. And once you get there, you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level. You're going to pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and, and help us out. Again, anchor.fm forward slash Art Fight Podcast. Click on support this podcast. All right. Thanks, everyone.